millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Chronic, the podcast that asks what health and well-being look like when you're chronically unwell. It's me, Lucy, opinion editor at HuffPost UK, and this week I'm joined by a guest whose outlook on health is somewhat different to my own. Jack Anderson is type 1 diabetic. He's a personal trainer and an Ironman triathlete who is used to pushing his body to extremes. Jack, (laughs) hi, thank you so much for joining me. Hi. How's it going? Yeah, good. How are you? Not bad, thank you. Not bad. So you're joining me today because you were diagnosed with diabetes when you were just 15. Yeah. And I know at first your diagnosis was quite hard for you to talk about, but now you speak about your condition a lot. Yeah. You're an ambassador for Diabetes UK, and this year you also challenged yourself to do one very ridiculous thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You decided to do an Ironman to really test the limits of your condition and also raise awareness of diabetes. So I definitely want to hear about that. But before we do, let's talk a bit about your diagnosis. Yeah. You were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when you were still at school. Yeah, 2015, January 2015. Right. So tell me a little bit about how that came about. So probably over the course of three weeks around the Christmas period in 2015, I was sort of feeling at about 80%. So wasn't feeling my usual self. And I was starting to get some of the symptoms of undiagnosed diabetes, which is passing a lot of urine, like extreme thirst, loss of appetite, but then also like quite an extreme appetite at the same time. My hormones were all over the shop. And yeah, I I didn't really think it was anything to sort of like raise with a doctor or anything. But my mum obviously had noticed that I'd been losing a lot of weight, which again is is another symptom of type 1 diabetes. And yeah, so she booked the doctor's appointment and I was like, right, let's just go and see what's going on and then yeah was told pretty much instantly that I had diabetes but at the time had no idea what that was. I can imagine especially at 15 you're not particularly plugged in there's so many other changes going on in your body you don't imagine that it's going to be a chronic illness and it was going to have to be something that you really proactively managed. What did that look like for you? I think any 15-year-old, well, any parent who has a 15-year-old child will probably agree that when you're 15 you don't want to follow rules you want to push the boundaries a little bit you want to stay out a little bit longer you want to be an adult but you're not quite when I was told that this was something that was going to affect me every single day every single second for the rest of my life I sort of sat there like oh man this is uh (laughs) this is more than just a course of antibiotics this is lifelong now and that was sort of the the biggest difficulty that I had is that I wanted to get on with my life I wanted to go out with my friends I wanted to go to parties stay out later I didn't want to be different. I didn't want to have anything about me that people could make fun of. And I didn't want to have this condition that, in my opinion, was quite uncool. I didn't want to have to walk around with my rucksack, with my testing kit, my sweets. You know, it's normal for a diabetic to pull out an injection and inject themselves before they eat some food. But to another 15-year-old child, that's a very weird thing. 
you know, people being like, oh, he's taking heroin, he's taking steroids. And I was like, I'm a 15-year-old kid, of course I'm not. They would liken you to a drug user. Well, that's, that's what people joke about, you know, and it's, unfortunately, it's uh, it's poor humour, but it's just one of those things. And, you know, I was I was never, never bullied or never picked on, but that, at the time, I didn't appreciate them because it was something that I actually hated having to do. Because, first of all, I'm a big wimp and I don't like injections, but then also... You I... describe yourself as a big wimp, but you, <laughs> it, it's more than that, though, isn't it? It's a, I think you described it to me as a phobia of needles. It's funny now, because even when I go and get all my all my bloods done, I sort of, like, have my arm at the nurse and I'm just, like, not looking and I'm shying away. And I'm like, just do it and I'll, I'll speak to you afterwards. I'm still... So how many times a day do you have to inject? Um, I have one injection that I have to take in the morning and one injection that I have to take in the evening. This is slow-acting insulin that just sort of, like essentially just works as a background and then every single time I eat I then have to inject so I do eat quite a lot so I'm probably looking at about 10 injections a day. Wow that must be so challenging when you're having to inject. I I don't think it's a phobia that I'll ever be able to get over completely and that's sort of what I really struggled with for the first three years of my diagnosis so I just sort of completely ignored the fact that I had diabetes and just wanted to pretend that it didn't exist. And this meant that I wasn't eating any carbs because I didn't want to inject. Um, And this essentially led to me giving myself a kidney condition. But if that was to have gone on for a number of more months, then I would eventually end up on dialysis. Um, Massively misunderstood nutrition. My understanding was very, very poor. Um, People with diabetes, if their blood sugar levels are quite high, it can affect the retina in the back of your eye. So when I was sort of... 15, 16, I'd started going to the gym. So I was eating like a very high protein diet. Um, And I was eating so much protein in some of my meals that I would then sort of like temporarily be blind after my meals. So for me, that was like, uh, okay, this is something that you're going to have to fix. Wow, that's really, really shocking in some ways, that story. Um, From what I've understood, it was quite an extreme diet that you went on uh, when you were first diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So could you explain to the listeners that don't have an understanding of diabetes why you did that and and what the effect of it was? Sure. So as a a human being, whenever you eat any food that contains carbohydrates, your body will produce insulin, which will break down that carbohydrate and save your blood sugar levels from spiking. Someone with type 1 or type 2 diabetes, their pancreas will not be able to produce the hormone insulin, which means that if you eat anything with carbs, it will then essentially cause a big spike in your blood sugar level. And this is a big issue for diabetics. And this is why with a really low carb diet as a diabetic, it means that you're always at an increased risk of going hypo. So when your levels drop below what is safe, I I best describe it as feeling a bit drunk. You're a bit all over the place. You can't really think straight. You're really aggy and you need sugar quite instantly. But You know, I had a hypo when I was 16 or 17 where I blacked out. I luckily didn't hit my head and anything, but it was sort of at that point that I was like, right, this is really scary. And that's because that hypo wasn't being treated. The bigger issue with that is that people get quite ill with their diabetes and can even pass away from their diabetes. We can get issues with our circulation. We can get issues with our eyesight. We can get issues with our sense of touch. And then again, that can cause some pretty significant issues later on down the line. I wonder when you were going through that really difficult period and struggling to to manage your health in a you know healthy way, did you ever get to a point where you realised with your eating that it was perhaps verging on eating disorder territory? Or For sure. So I definitely did have quite an unhealthy relationship with food and I de- definitely did have 
quite an unhealthy relationship with sort of my mental health in terms of the the conversations that I had with myself and I massively cared about what other people thought about me and I I always used exercise as a way of sort of like punishing myself and that's quite commonly seen where people will use exercise as a tool of self-harm. I definitely had like body dysmorphia issues at the time as well where I saw myself as this person that wasn't very strong and wasn't very, I wanted to be really muscular, I wanted to be really fit, would never want to eat anything unhealthy in front of people because I would, I would I would want people to think that I was really healthy. And I think that's because my impression of diabetes was that it was only something that affected unhealthy people. But with the lack of understanding that I had of diabetes at the time, I thought that it was something that I'd done. So I was sort of blaming myself. So I was like, well, you've given yourself diabetes. So you now need to be really hard on yourself with everything you eat, with the way that you train. So I was, you know, training multiple times in the week, eating no carbs because that's what I thought was healthy at the time. And in reality, it it wasn't at all. Yeah, I can definitely relate to being quite self-punishing, I suppose, when, when you're trying to control your health. When I was diagnosed with endometriosis, there was a there's a there's a certain amount of literature that says like if you cut out certain foods, you can lower the body's inflammatory response. And so I I tried all that and I was really very rigid about it for a year. And actually, part of the the journey to acceptance of of living with a, a chronic illness for me was accepting that you can't change everything and not being so self-punishing. What did the people around you think of that? Did they notice? Did your family and friends notice? So, I mean, my my friends didn't notice so much. My mum was noticing quite a lot. Um, It was sort of at that point where I was like, well, what do I actually want from my life? And it was just, I want to be healthy and I want to be happy. And it wasn't making me happy and it also wasn't making me healthy. So at that point, it was like, right, I need to change. I can't keep going and making myself unwell. So I definitely want to hear about that. But but how for you now is um, doing something like an, an Ironman and like that ultimate test of endurance, how is that different in your mind from where you were in the past when you were being very self-punishing and pushing yourself too hard in an unhealthy way? I had the idea. I was out running with one of my friends um we were sort of saying like you know with all this added time it would be great to train for something and raise some money for charity like like people do and I was like well you know what if I'm gonna raise money I want it to be something that is quite obscene like the fact that you introduced it what I did as ridiculous that for me is like a big win because I want people (laughs) to think that what I did was ridiculous I wanted to pick something where I was like I actually don't know if I can do that I'd never even run a half marathon at the start of this. And then to sort of piece all of these together, to me, scared the scared the crap out of me. And I was thinking, how am I going to be able to do this? But that's what I liked. I really thrived off the idea of people being like, that's crazy that you're going to do that. That's ridiculous. And I was like, yeah, it is. And that's why I'm going to try and raise some money for charity. Because when I was 15 and when I was diagnosed with diabetes, I always saw the diagnosis as a closed door. I always saw it as, right, well, that's something that's going to stop me from doing loads of things. And I think when I was first diagnosed, I was always sort of confronted by what I couldn't do and what was going to be limited due to my diabetes. But I wasn't ever really faced with what was still possible and what was still open for me. And, you know, as a diabetic, you're in control of so much. It's just you've got to just spend a little bit more time being prepared. So for for those who don't know about Iron Man, 
tell us a little bit about what that race looks like. So an Ironman triathlon is a 2.4 mile swim into a 112 mile bike ride into a marathon, so into a 26.2 mile run. The amount of training that goes into it is extreme. It's a, it, well, I best describe it like working another job. You know, I was training for like 20 to 25 hours a week and I want to see what I'm physically capable of with my diabetes. How am I going to manage a 15 hour event? But also in terms of mentally, how will I go with a 15 hour event? Because it's very different when you're doing something for that length of time. And it was a challenge that I felt like over the course of four months, I found out more about myself in that time than I had sort of in the other 20 years of my life, which was like incredible. And I'd, I'd, I'd honestly do it all over again if I had another four months of my life to to sit around and look at a white wall. But um, and yeah, it was pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds it. I mean, diabetes or not, like an Iron Man is something that most people wouldn't even, you know, consider taking on. But there was there were very specific challenges to to completing an Ironman with diabetes. It wasn't a question of is this going to be a challenge for my diabetes. It was how am I going to manage this extreme challenge? Exactly. So that. How, how how did you manage that? Um so I knew that the biggest challenge that I was going to face was controlling my blood sugar levels and they're always going to be up and down. So you need to roughly work out how many grams of carbs your body needs to fuel uh, essentially the the what you're asking the body to do for an hour. And then you need to figure out how many grams of carbs you need to eat every hour to stabilize your blood sugar levels. So, well, to give you some numbers, I ate 1.5 kilograms of carbs on the day of my event. So, so what, my, did that, what did that? What did that? What did that look like in practice? <laughs> what did that look like on a plate? That's like you'd need a, you'd need a couple of plates. <laughs> you'd need a couple of plates. <laughs> yeah. What What was that? Pasta? No. So French fancies. You know the little like French fancies. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. ate one point five kilos of French fancies. No, 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 no. Not just the French fancies. On the okay. day, it was you know it was bananas. <laughs> it was sweets. It was flapjacks. It was sandwiches. It was it was a lot of food, but. My biggest go-to for training was um, was French fancies. I'd take one every 20 minutes and I'd do like, I don't know, maybe sometimes like 12 to 20 French fancies in a session. Wow. Yeah. So I suppose, I mean, that just speaks to how disciplined you had to be in the the, prep, the preparation, the administrative side of things. I, I can imagine if you got if you got those levels wrong, it would have had major consequences for you. Was the was the diet side of things something that you took guidance from a doctor on? Did you have support during this? So one of my very good friends, who's also another PT and online coach, he's very knowledgeable on all of this stuff. So we did a lot of work together in terms of like what I should be eating and the digestion speeds of a lot of food and essentially how certain foods would then affect my blood sugar levels, which would then affect my performance. You know, there's a few things that are going to be out of your control, like your blood sugar levels are affected by a few different things like stress, like the temperature, like your sleep, as well as just like the general sort of control of your blood sugar levels. But I mean, like training training for this, there was a lot of things that could have gone wrong and thankfully didn't. It was just then a case of, right, let's put a plan together and then let's just do whatever it takes to get there. But the thing that I the thing that I I liked most about the event was the conversations that I was having with people around diabetes, around conditions, around mentality. And, 
you know, I, I've known a guy for seven years, a guy that I consider one of my friends. And it was only when I put out what I was doing and that I was diabetic that he was like, I'm diabetic as well. And I was like, how have we never had this conversation? You know, we've been friends for seven years. And that's just sort of, for me, that highlighted why I was doing it is that it's a condition that a lot of people suffer with. A lot of people think that it's a huge barrier to exercises and it's a huge barrier to their goals that they have. In the previous conversations we've had on this podcast, specifically, I'm thinking about one of them. Uh, we had uh, a BBC journalist, Jan Prescott. She lives with lupus. And she was telling us that in her entourage, she really struggles to get a lot of the men in her life to see the doctor. Is there something about, I mean, I know you just said about your friend that you only just discovered that he also had diabetes. Do you think there's something about being a man like that that makes it more difficult or challenging to have those conversations? Yeah, 100%. Men typically and statistically won't go and seek help because they won't want to seem less manly. You know, what what is that about? And I think men do have this issue with seeking help, feeling vulnerable. I mean, for, for me with my, like, in terms of like specifically to my diabetes, I, I didn't ever want to admit that I might have had something slightly wrong with me. And I don't think it was anything to do with me feeling as much of a man. It's just I didn't want anybody to think that there was any reason to treat me any differently because of it. And I think, you know, when something that I've always hated is I hate, I hate sympathy from people because I don't think that there's anything wrong with having diabetes. But I would, you know, like mum would tell some of her friends and if I was ever around there, they'd be like, oh, can I get you any sweets or any? And it was like, you, you don't have to sort of patronise me with the whole, do you need any sweets thing? Because I'm I'm fine and I'm looking after it myself. And that's why for ages I didn't speak out about it. And then it was sort of, I think it was a mix of me actually speaking with my friends quite a lot about it over the first lockdown period that I was like, actually, you know, like my diabetes is a disadvantage that I and diabetics have over people who don't have diabetes. It is certainly a disadvantage, but it's by no means an excuse. There comes a point where your excuse isn't valid you know, a lot of people get really comfortable with their excuses of why they can't do this and why they can't do that. But it gets to a certain point where if you just stay really comfortable with your excuses, you're never going to achieve anything any bigger than what you set yourself. And that was like, for me, I wouldn't, I, like five years ago, I never would have set myself a target of an Ironman. And previously, I probably had used my diabetes as a bit of an excuse. I felt like if I could sort of put myself in a very vulnerable position and show myself that I could, or like show other people that I could work through something that I shouldn't really be doing, then that in turn should hopefully be maybe a bit of motivation for some people to then maybe set themselves a goal and to just sort of push their limit. Because I never set off with this whole diabetic Ironman of inspiring everyone with diabetes to go and do an Ironman. It was just pick your excuse and fight it. And my excuse for a lot of things was my diabetes. I'd used it as sort of like a white flag in a lot of cases in my life. And I was like, I'm actually tired of using it as a white flag and I'm going to use it to my benefit. I think that's really interesting what you say about seeing it as an excuse or perhaps using it as an excuse in the past. Because quite often in our conversations around illness, I think that perhaps people sometimes approach it from the other way around, that they've been pushing themselves for a really long time in a way that's been really unsustainable and coming to terms with things has actually been dialing things back. 
Whereas in your case, it sounds like you decided, okay, I don't want my health to take such a spotlight anymore. I want to talk about what I want to achieve. And then we work backwards from there. I think for me, a lot of coming to terms with living with chronic illness has been about unpicking society's expectations of how productive I should be, um, how much I should expect of my body, how much I should push myself. And it's been about sort of unlearning some of those expectations. You're approaching it from a place of, I don't, I don't want to slow, <laughs> slow things down. I want to speed things up. Yeah, massively. And I can sort of like, I can sort of explain a little bit as to why my mindset is like that. So when I was 15 and I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed on a Thursday and the diabetic doctor had gone off, taken the Friday off and wasn't going to be in until the Monday. So I basically had to stay overnight, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, so I had like four or five nights in hospital and I was actually kept in a, basically it was like a child's cancer ward. Um, for me, being in a position where I was surrounded by people that had their fate written for them and weren't in control of what was going to happen to them, for, for me that definitely was the start of molding probably who I am now is that I wasn't ever going to let diabetes get in the way because I actually felt really fortunate to have diabetes and be in a position where actually I was still very fit and able. It's not stopping me physically from doing anything. It's not stopping me mentally from doing anything. It completely flipped my mindset on how 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 my diabetes would work. And everyone, I think the thing that's been so great about this podcast is that everyone's experiences are so different that that depending on the condition you live with, where you've grown up, the kind of upbringing you've had, everyone approaches illness in a different way. And we've all internalized different messages around illness. You could take two people with diabetes and they would have very different stories. So it depends who you're around and it depends who's in your support network that's going to determine how you view diabetes. And I think it really depends on the individual and the, the circumstances that they find themselves under and the support network and the nature of those support networks around people that make them feel either way. Mm. For me, I've been very fortunate that I've been very independent from a very young age. And, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that I do that other diabetics definitely wouldn't do. Whereas I know that if it was probably up to my mum, I would still be following every rule to the <laughs> to the book. But I, I actually haven't been doing that. I've completely gone off on a bit of a tangent of what I want to do. And, you know, that might have it that might have its repercussions in, I don't know, 50 years time. But I'm sort of happy for that to be the case. And I'm actually quite lucky that I am able to go and do whatever I want to do. And as long as my mum doesn't know about some stuff, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, always keep a, a few things from your mum. That's the life lesson here. Always. <laughs> Sorry, mum, who I know listens to my podcast. She's very proud. I'm going to go on to our final question now. We ask all of our guests this, and every response is different. So I'll be really interested to hear what, what you have to say. So what does living well mean to you now? Living well, living well to me now is finding whatever makes you happy, and putting all of your energy into bettering that. I've realised that it's actually so important to live uh, sort of in harmony with my diabetes rather than thinking that it's something that I can just battle against forever. And that's certainly something that I was doing. Now my mindset on my diabetes is completely different. And, you know, I strive to 
be as healthy as I can be sort of in every element of health and health is managing what makes you healthy not what makes somebody else healthy like health is just something that's like massively holistic in your approach with it and it needs to be a conjunction of multiple different things to overall sort of equal this big word of health and it's not just something that you do physically or something that you do mentally or socially it's sort of a a perfect balance of all three so for me that is making sure that my work my relationships my training is all in check and making sure that that's nice and balanced but then also making sure that my diabetes my diet my sleep um, and again all of my relationships and my work are also uh, being looked after so that I'm as happy as I can be Um, I think it's really important that you focus on what makes you happy because what makes you happy will also make you healthy and jack i think um i think your dog is letting us know that it, it's time to wrap up is it <laughs> is it time for walkies time for walkies that's it <laughs> oh well, thank you so so much for taking the time to chat with me jack your story is really really interesting and i think will be really inspiring to lots of listeners so thank, thank you. you thank you very much If you want to find out more about type 1 diabetes and Jack's journey, you can find all the information you need at the Diabetes UK website. And you can also catch his amazing Amazon Prime documentary, Sweet Suffering, which comes out on the 5th of December. Please do rate and subscribe to the podcast and keep sending us your comments, stories and letters. We absolutely love to hear from you. So do get in touch. Um, You can reach us at chronic at huffpost.com. 